Amen. Uh, so we're continuing in our Proverbs series. As I mentioned last week, chapter 6 of Proverbs, uh, the first half increases in its depravity. And so last week we looked at the man who's out for quick gain and the man who's out for an easy life. And so um, now we're going to kind of transition from the self-harm and the self-slavery of last week to harming others and seeking to enslave others in, in your sin. So the, 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 the uh, transition from being a victim of your own act, actions last week to victimizing others by your actions this week. So before we get into that, um, we have to ask ourselves honest questions about sin. How serious is sin? Is humanity really that bad or maybe just kind of bad? Because the, deg the degree of humanity's sinfulness is in direct proportion to the degree of what humanity's need is. Because if we're kind of bad and uh, humanity is mostly good, there's still hope for us, right? If humanity has some merit on its own, if we could stand on any of the good works that we have, the good things that, that we've done, then, then God has to listen to our appeal, right? I don't think I'm overstating this when I say that the greatest challenge to the gospel message is our optimism about mankind. That we think too highly of the goodness of man. That humanity's not really that bad. We look around because everyone gives us their, their, their best face, they put their, their best foot forward, and they act like they've got it all together. They really can't be that bad. How is all this, this, this talk about sin and, and hell in, in the church? That's just insensitive. That's just intolerant. But that's the problem. The other half of the problem is we think too little about a holy and almighty God. We take a God who is fully perfect in all of his ways, a God who is just, a God who is powerful, a God who is holy and almighty, and we reduce him to Mr. Rogers, the all-loving, all-forgiving of all people, regardless of repentance, regardless of the work of Christ. He cares nothing for holiness. He cares nothing for wickedness and, and rebellion. And he accepts us just as we are. Well, if that's the message that we teach, if that's the message that the church teaches, then why repent? Then why do we have any need for salvation? Because you are good just the way you are. Stay right there. And humanism has always sought to defend and lift up man. We're always trying to make man seem good and, and uh, de defend our humanity because we don't want to be guilty. We don't want to come face to face with our own sin and, be, and our own uh, being deserving of the punishment of God. So let me give you one example that you, we've all heard or maybe even asked. I want you to finish the sentence for me. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people. Let's, let, let's break that down, and let's, this is common. Every one of you could finish that, that sentence. Why is this so common, and what are the assumptions within it? Notice what's assumed here. Why does God? Who's being accused here? Who's at fault? Right away, it assumes that God is guilty. By the very statement of the question, why would God that evil guy in the sky, how could he do this? God is guilty. Who are the innocent? How could God allow bad things happen to good people? This statement in and of itself is the sentiment of many people and many so-called Christians. And it puts God on trial and humanity takes the witness stand. Imagine that. God, who are you to do bad things to these good people? You cannot appreciate what you are saved from unless you understand the sinful condition. And you cannot appreciate what you are saved to unless you understand God's evaluation of sin. Because I guarantee you, however good you think you are, However righteous you think God is, you are so much more depraved than you could ever understand. And he is so much more holy and righteous than you could ever comprehend. Amen. 
So, uh, what we're going to be dealing with today is radical depravity. If you're familiar with the doctrines of grace, it's most often called uh, total depravity. And this particular doctrine, that all of humanity, our being, is so corrupted that we cannot choose God on our own, is the, 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 the foundation for which all of the rest of the doctrines of salvation hinge. Because if we're not dead in our sin, if we're only mostly dead in kind of Prince's Bride terms, um, then, then, then salvation looks a little bit different. Um, I, I titled this Radical Depravity uh, because of James Montgomery Boyce. Um, if you can, I, I like to recommend good books. If you can get your hands on anything that James Montgomery Boyce ha, has, has written, um, commentaries, uh, books on the Christian life, but this one, The Doctrines of Grace, it's fantastic. Uh, rediscovering the Evangelical Gospel. Um, I wish I could cite the entire chapter, but I just want to read uh, how he addresses this. So he says, according to the Bible, uh, it should be up on the screen as well. According to the Bible, to be a sinner is not merely to be morally imperfect or to be unable to achieve one's full potential without God. It is rather a description of human beings in an utterly ruined state, a state from which we are unable to deliver ourselves and in which we might all have been left to perish and justly so. The early church father, Augustine, said it this way, we are not able to not sin. It is not in our capacity to stop sinning. And the Bible says this again and again and again. Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Paul tells us that um, no one seeks after God. Isaiah tells us that our, that our righteousness is as filthy rags. And we must know this about ourselves before we study a text like this. Because the temptation is to read a text like this and say, that's out there, that's them, that's those w wicked people, and I can stand in judgment of them because I'm so much better than them. So let's open our scriptures to Proverbs chapter 6. I'm going to be dealing with verses 12 through 19. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 12. A worthless person... A wicked man goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, how awesome you are. The name that is above every name. No other God compares to you. In fact, there is no other God. You are all perfections. You're perfectly loving, perfectly knowledgeable, perfectly powerful, perfectly just, perfect even in hatred of sin, perfect in wrath poured out against sin that offends your very nature. Lord, we have much to seek forgiveness for. We cry out for your mercy, and we praise you for your mercy. We praise you that you sent your son to stand in our place as the only rightful lamb, the only sacrifice that could, pretend, that could possibly cover the depth of our sin and depravity. Lord, may you be glorified this morning. May your spirit speak through your word. May it not come back void. May we be a people who are transformed by it. And may anyone who is here this morning, resting on their own goodness, trying to save themselves, trying to stand before you justified in their own eyes, may they be broken by their sin. And may they cry out 
to Jesus Christ for salvation. Father, I pray that you draw the lost sheep to yourself, that you, may be, that you would be glorified through it, and that we may all exalt and praise your name as the only God who is mighty to save. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to give a brief overview of our text, uh, and then we'll, we'll jump in. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on details this morning. This is a bit redundant uh, in these two passages, but I want you to see the connection between the two. So verses 12 through 15 is kind of this, this uh, troublemaker. Just like the adulterous woman, this is, this is not have one person in mind. This is this, this uh, caricature of, of, of wickedness. Um, not everyone is going to exhibit all of these at the same time, but any of these gives an indication of what's going on in the heart. And this is kind of um, expanding on chapter 2. If you remember in chapter 2 of, of Proverbs, the promise of, of wisdom is if the son is, is uh, faithful and if, he, and if he fears the Lord, the Lord gives wisdom. Picking up in verse 12 of chapter 2, uh, the wisdom will come into your heart and will deliver you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness, who walk to the ways of darkness, who, re, uh, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. The evil men this week are as diligent as the sluggard was lazy last week. They are as committed to their, their craft as the last two we saw last week. And so this idea of depravity doesn't mean that everything on the surface will always seem and always look bad. But what it, what it means is that humanity in totality is affected by sin. Every aspect of our being, every action, every, every, every word cannot stand in goodness on its own because sin has corrupted it all. And so there's a, there's a direct association between the wicked person in verses 12 through 15 and what the Lord hates in 16 through 19. These two units are linked by theme, detail, and result. The second section, 16 through 19, is an extension of the first. It describes this this uh, worthless person that we'll look at in just a moment as someone God hates and just describes all of these aspects that are repeated from the first section. Telling the son, as a wise father would, watch out for anyone exhibiting these characteristics. Not only because it won't end up well for you, but more importantly because God hates them. So let's jump in. Verse 12. First word here. A worthless person. Um, you may recognize this in the Hebrew. In Hebrew, this is Belial. Belial. If you know the words of Jesus and the teachings of Christ. This word is literally, it literally means of no worth, without worth. It's of no value at all, and it assumes wickedness. It is so synonymous with wicked, wickedness, it's a common term throughout the Old Testament, that it became associated with Satan later on. So I want you, first and foremost, before we get any further, um, I want to take a step aside with some application here from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is making an interesting argument here as he's calling the church in Corinth to faithfulness, to continue in their, their hope as ambassadors of, of Christ in season and out of season, not to be deterred from the work of the gospel. But there's this Interjection in the middle of this chapter. And notice all of the comparisons here. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We'll talk about that in a second. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? That's capitalized there because it's referring to Satan. But the Hebrew readers would understand it is, it is worthlessness personified in Satan. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. This call to holiness. Holiness we know means to be set apart. You are to be unlike the world and, and not in agreement with the world. Not in partnership with the world. This picture of being unequally yoked is two oxen that have to plow a field. If you've got one strong oxen and one weak oxen, the strong oxen is going to pull the cart to the right or to the left. 
and you're not going to end up with straight lines and your field is going to be a mess. In order to have straight lines in your field, in order to be a productive farmer, you need two equally strong oxen to pull the yoke together. But what this does, when we yoke or partner ourselves with an unbeliever, is that we are going to move forward in a straight line. But they are going to drag behind. They cannot carry the weight. They're not meant to. And so we will swerve all over the place and we'll be unproductive. So before I begin in this text, I want us to think about what portion should we have with Belial? What partnership would we, should we have with the people of the world? Now, let's say what Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians. Not that we can't associate with them. They need to hear the gospel. The lost need to be saved, of course. But to say that we are on equal footing, to say that, that, that we can be yoked together, that we can be in perfect partnership, this is most often applied to marriage, and it is absolutely true. If you have a, if you have a believer and an unbeliever, God cannot be glorified in the same way as if there is a believing husband and a believing wife together. The same thing applies for business. If you and an unbeliever strike out in, in a partnership together, you think you're going to have the, the same ideals? The same thing goes for, for, for counselors. How many of you go to secular friends or secular experts for advice? Not that they will never give truth, but they, they, they can't get to the heart of the matter. They can't address the, the, the spiritual issues that, that you are dealing with. They can't address the, the uh, spiritual realm and the eternal value that you have. They just can't. Your questions and your thoughts fall on deaf ears because they fall on dead ears. And we need to think about who influences us. Because if we think that mankind is essentially good, and that they would never have our best interest in mind. And we hold the counselors of the world and the counselors of Scripture and of our brothers and sisters in Christ in equal. How will that look in our lives? And I think a major reason why many children leave the church is because this is how they are raised. They go to public schools. They have secular friends. They have worldly entertainment. They maybe go to church on Sunday, maybe go to a youth group, and are with the worldly influences all week long. The, the, the parents never speak into their lives in the week. They assume that the church is doing that for one hour on a Sunday morning, and they wonder why their children want nothing to do with the Lord. Do the math. Who do you think is having a greater influence? Now do the math in your own life. Who is having the greater influence? If you were to take an account of your time, where is your information being drawn from? Who are your counselors? Who are you in, in partnership, in agreement with? This is sobering for the believer. Because as the writer of Proverbs says, a, a worthless person, a worthless man, back to verse 12, goes about with crooked speech. Even the best speech of a non-believer is going to be crooked. It cannot be straight. They will say nice things. They will say helpful things. But it cannot be righteous. In fact, this is what the word depravity means. It means thoroughly crooked. It means like perverse by nature. A state of being perverse. Even their righteous deeds, even their righteous speech is still filthy rags. And if you try to be yoked with an unbeliever, you will not stay on a straight path. It is not possible. So moving on to verse 13. This worthless person, notice all the subversive, subtle behavior here. This nonverbal manipulation. He's um, winking and he's signaling and he's pointing and he's, and he's perverting. Here's the thing about wickedness. It's not always pervert, or excuse me, overt. Wickedness is always perverse. It's not always, it's not always overt. I think people think that, well, if, if humanity's bad, then they would walk around killing everybody and, and that we'd just be in, in total chaos. Thank God for his, for his common grace. And thank God for the restriction of, of, of laws and, and authority so that it's not chaos everywhere we go. But sin is so much more sly and sneaky than that. Look at this, this language here. 
He winks with his eyes. What do you know about winking? Winking is secret communication. Winking is, winking is signaling to someone else who's in cahoots with you when you don't want someone else to know what, what's going on. We kind of wink like, yeah, we both know what's going on here, but, but no one else does. It's this kind of subversive, um, secretive pact between friends that excludes everyone else. Um, this one doesn't make as much sense to us, but signals with his, with his feet. Now, um, what's going on here is the uh, nonverbal communication. Because you can't trust the, the wicked person, watch their, their uh, body language. Um, it's like giving a sign. Like if you're the, the, the first base coach, you know, there's a still, still second kind of sign. that The other team doesn't know what's, what's going on, but you are motioning with, with your feet. I think the, uh, the uh, King James is helpful here. He said he, he speaks with his feet and teaches with his hands. Um, so there's a whole conversation that's going on here without saying words because his true motives are, are hidden. And he points with his finger. So anyone who points with his finger is looking down their arm toward the end of their finger at someone else. They see themselves as higher and more important than, than someone else. They are distinguishing them from you. They are, they are creating division. I'm over here, you're, you're over there, and it is accusatory. There is a teaching going on by this one motion. You are speaking volumes without saying a word. Everything that is going on externally flows from what is happening internally. Verse 14, with perverted heart devises evil. Everything external pours out of the condition of the heart. The heart is our wellspring of all intentions. As in other places in Proverbs, the condition of the heart tells the condition of man. It begins in the heart, and for good or bad, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Eventually, the condition of your heart is, is going to come out of your mouth and come out of your actions. Um, I want you to look at Genesis 6-5. Just the one verse. Um, but if you're familiar with the, the, the context of Genesis and the state of, of humanity, and why would God bring a flood, and why would God destroy people? This is the natural trajectory of mankind always. The Lord saw the wickedness of man. It was great on the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is why God destroyed the world in a flood. This is why we need a savior. Because whether we're honest or not, this is our heart. We can't think good thoughts for two seconds before going into wickedness. This is why he will come again to judge the living and the dead. This is why this earth is going to dissolve because it is covered by this curse. This perverted heart in Proverbs is not a minor condition. It continually sows discord. It continually seeks division. It will never have enough because it is miserable and this misery wants company. And it wants to see everyone else uncomfortable so it can seem self-righteous. I've got it together. Look at how quickly they crumbled. It is a hatred for everything that is good and right and orderly. Therefore, verse 15, calamity will come upon him suddenly. He may prosper for a time. But as can be expected, the one who tries to break others will be broken beyond healing. I want to look at a couple of Psalms here. Psalm 92, 7. Josh read this this morning, didn't even know I was going to go there. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. The picture here is the grass looks good. It looks like it's, like it's going to remain. It, it's, it sprouts up, but it cannot last. It will be destroyed. It will be thrown into the, the fire. And our temptation sometimes is when we see them sprouting up, we see them prospering. Lord, why are all the the um, heathens rich, and why are, you know, why are things going well for, for, for this person? Because we're so short-sighted. We don't realize how often we exalt the, the, the people of this world, and how many are surprised when they fall suddenly and publicly. 
we are on this express freight train to depravity. It's like every week, some new public figure, some new politician, some new actor, some new athlete is, doing, is, is getting um, just excoriated in the news. And they're, and they're falling and people are surprised. Oh, them? They've got all this money. They've got all this fame. Why isn't everything going well for them? Isn't that the meaning of life? We should not be surprised. But I think what's even more scary is when we are tempted by their money, by their life of ease. If I just had what, what they had, if I was in their position. The psalmist speaks to this in Psalm uh, 73, 1 through 3. Notice how this transition happens, and it happens with each one of us. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Amen. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he, and he goes on to talk about all the things that seemed to be going right for them. And I almost stumbled because I thought, man, they've got it better than me. Because I seem to be suffering right now. But brothers and sisters, if you are suffering the worst that this world has to offer, in the mighty right hand of your God, that is greater blessing than all the riches and all the wealth that this world will ever have to offer. And if we're ever tempted to covet the wicked, if we're ever tempted to think that our sin is minimal because the world thinks our sin is minimal, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. One of my favorite challenges and encouragements to the church um, in the same small section, 1 Corinthians 6, looking at 9 through 11. Here's this separation again. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What partnership has Christ with Belial? Do not be unequally yoked. They cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Don't think that you will share an inheritance in this world when your eternal inheritance is different. But here's the good news. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. Don't lose sight of that. Don't forget so quickly you were the sexually immoral. You were the idolaters. You were the adulterers. You were the men who practiced homosexuality. You were the thieves. That was your problem. That was your sin condition. And in that sin condition, you can never inherit the kingdom of God. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is the good news of the gospel. Without the washing, without the being cleansed from sin, this picture of new birth, new life, regeneration, without, the, without being sanctified, without being set apart, it is God who washes, it is God who sanctifies, and without being justified, without being able to stand before him righteous because of Christ's righteousness, being declared righteous in the sight of God, you are like them, but you're not. Beloved, if you are in Christ Jesus, never forget those words. Never forget that it is not based on your ability to not be these things. It is based on Christ washing you, Christ sanctifying you, and Christ justifying you. In the complete agreement of our God, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by the Spirit of God, and in um, here, by the Spirit of our God, Father, Son, and Spirit, all in agreement here. And such were some of you. Apart from Christ, you are beyond healing. That is why we need a Savior. That is, that is why sin is such a problem. Because as James tells us, if you broke one of the commandments, you have broken them all. If this is making you uncomfortable this morning, this is the first time you're ever hearing this, Good. Because if you don't know your own sin, if you don't know how great your, your, your Savior is, you have no hope. 
you are lost. The good news is that there was one who was righteous. There is one who is righteous. There is one who stood in our place. There is one who went before us. There is one who took all of our wickedness upon him. And all that we must do is put our faith in him and our life in his hands. And the one who began the work will complete it. Amen. But you may ask, maybe you are in your head, but what about good deeds? What about when it seems like I'm doing good things or lost people are doing good things? How do we reconcile that? I'm glad you asked. Uh, One of the great analogies that James Montgomery Boyce brings up in here is he compares our righteous deeds to monopoly money. If you're playing monopoly money, it has value. While you're you're playing the game, whether you're the car or the thimble, I don't know why anyone wants to be the thimble. Um, But that, that money really means something. But try paying your bills with monopoly money. Try applying the money from Monopoly in life or any other game. It only applies where its currency is accepted. It's like going to Ruth Chris with an EBT card. They're just going to laugh in your face. This is the difference between our righteous deeds. Because heavenly currency is righteous and undefiled. It is the work of Christ that is done into eternity. You cannot try to buy your salvation with paper money. When we do good things... We are trying to take Monopoly money and hand it to God and like, see how much I've won. I've got Boardwalk and Park Place. You, you, you gotta let me in. This is the contrast. We are trying to earn eternal reward with money that is worth nothing. We are trying to earn something that, that cannot perish with what perishes and what passes away. It can't happen. You can't buy eternal reward with temporary wealth, with temporary good deeds. And so when someone asks you this, when you ask this, compare the two. Does anything that is done here hold up to eternity? It cannot because it is, a, because it is cursed, because it is depraved like all of our actions. All right, let's move on to the second section. So there's a logical flow here uh, because there's a repetition of the ideas, the details, and the result. Um, it isn't said here, but the result is seeing that, they, that they're going to be broken. And it's the Lord who does the breaking. Because there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. So this is not an exhaustive list, but this il- illustrates depravity. Notice here. The eyes, the tongue, the hands, the feet, the speech. Every aspect of humanity is affected by sin. In totality, our humanity is affected by our depravity. So you've got sins of attitude, sins of speech, sins of thought, sins of emotion, sins of action, sins of influence, the complete depraved package. And it's kind of laid out here. What's interesting, a couple things to note before we get in. This is the first time that Yahweh's name is mentioned. The Lord is not mentioned until verse 16. And when is he mentioned? By what he hates. Now this is going to be hard for maybe some of you. This is hard for many people. I think the reason why many churches and many people calling themselves Christians have so little view of salvation and so little view of sin is because they don't like to admit that God hates sin. And even in his hatred of sin, he is perfect for doing so. Because we confuse God's hatred with our hatred. We are selfish, we are, we are petty, we are so concerned with ourselves and our own validation, we can't even uh, fathom hatred without sin. But God, when he hates something, it is unspoiled. It is perfect, and he is right in doing so, because it is an abomination to his soul. The literal Hebrew here is it is an abomination to his soul. It offends his very nature. God hates sin because it has no part in him. There's nothing like him. He is wholly set apart from sin. And if the Lord hates sin and we sin, now do the math. How great is our need for a Savior? 
All right, let's work through this. Verse 17 now. Oh, um, quickly with the six and, and seven things. There's a lot of speculation on this and why this is used. Here's what we know for sure. This is a, a common ancient teaching tool. Um, if there's seven, there must be six. And for some reason, this sticks in our head. We, we'll see this in Proverbs 30. We'll see it in Job 5. We see it in a lot of like contemporary literature. It's just a, a little device. From now on, you will remember that there are six things that the Lord hates and seven things that are abominations to him. Um, just to bring our attention to the text. Let's walk through these seven. Haughty eyes, first one. This is the haughty look of pride. This is the prideful eye that looks down its nose, it looks down its, its, its pointed finger. It's thinking more highly of yourself and uh, looking down on others. It is the root of many sins. Pride, being haughty, is thinking too highly of yourself and thinking too much of yourself. If you are some, someone who beats yourself up all day and only thinks about how, how bad you are, you are prideful. If you think of yourself more than you think of anyone else or the Lord for that matter, you are prideful. You are haughty in your own eyes because you think the whole world revolves around you. That's number one. Number two, the lying tongue. This is not the person who lies. Every one of us in here has spoken lies out of our mouth. It is not the person who lies and repents, but this is the person who is fluent in lies. It's their second language. They, they, they weave in and out of it. We've all known these people. Maybe we've, we've been this people, this person, who doesn't know how to speak truthfully, who you can't trust because you never know when they're telling the truth or when they're lying. We've all had that, that friend who our first instinct is when, when, when they speak, we doubt what they say. That is not a thing that, that, that honors the Lord. and That is not a person we want to be around. This is the father warning the son, watch out for these things. Watch out for this wicked and perverse person from, from chapter 2. Uh, number 3. Haughty eyes, lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Those who shed innocent blood have no concern for the image bearers because they have no concern for God. They have no concern for the one who created them. They don't think God has any value, so his creation has no value. So they see nothing in taking innocent blood. And even if those in our world do not have blood on their, their hands, the sentiment is there. Our culture doesn't see value in life, only when it fits a particular agenda. Uh, the ladies will be studying this today, going through the sixth commandment. And as Jesus told us, our murder is first committed in our hearts. It is the hatred mingled with our, our sin that desires that other people just be out of our way so things would be easier for us. Ladies, I hope you do attend that, that study because it's not really a common topic for women. And not as many murderers among women as there are among men. But there have been many, men who have, many women who have murdered men with their eyes. Um, don't look at me like that. Um, <laughs> Husbands, you know what I'm talking about. Um, all right. Number four. I love you, baby. Um, where are we? A heart, that devises, a heart that devises wicked plans. Notice this is the middle again. This is where everything stems from. This is the, the kitchen where all evil is devised. This is where the meals are planned. This is where it's prepped. This is where it's, it's cooked. And this is where it's, it's sent out. John Calvin says we, our hearts are an idle factory. We just keep making and producing more meals. We keep producing more sin. We, we, we concoct these things in our hearts. Because like we saw in the last section, everything that comes out starts in. It starts behind the closed doors of the kitchen, and it sounds really good. It smells really good, and it's presented like, yeah, eat this. This will make you satisfied. But it keeps producing more and more wickedness, and it never satisfies. Number five, the feet that make haste to run to evil. This in the Hebrew is one who moves quickly without wisdom or sense. Just kind of scurrying around from one evil thing to the next. They are so excited to get into the next caper. 
They are so quick to get into trouble. God hates that. Number six, a false witness who breathes out lies. This is one who deceives like they breathe. It is natural to them. And the false witness is one who lies publicly. They lie for a living. They are professional false witnesses. They are false teachers. We live in a culture of experts who lie for a living. Who tell people things to prey on on, on weakness, to hold on to power, to get money. I won't name any names, but you've all got a picture in your mind. At least one. The Lord hates this. Building themselves up by creating a falsehood around them. And then number seven, the one who sows discord among brothers. There is nothing more hurtful and heinous than someone you love and someone who's close to you is no longer. Someone comes in between siblings or in between family members. And this, this last one seems like it's the least serious and it's often overlooked. But this has the most potential for damage. Because it, is, it takes where you feel most comfortable, who is most close to you, and it drives a wedge between you. And it hates unity and loves division. It wants to multiply. It wants to wreak havoc, especially in the church. This is where Satan gets his, his, his foothold. If you're in a solid church, you're not going to accept heretical teaching. You're not going to accept outward um, violence or, or any of those things. But what often slips in is the division, the gossip, the slander, those who turn brother against sister. And all it takes is is one disgruntled person and it begins to, to spread. This is why Paul says in Titus 3.10, as for the person who stirs up division, this is in the church, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Next slide. Is it not verse 11 up there? All right, it's Titus 3.10 and 11. Forgot to put the 11 in there. Verse 11 says, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. If you love division, if you continue in it and you don't take warning and correction, you are so warped and so sinful, you condemn yourself. You have no part in the church. All right, so we've kind of laid the land here with these, these two sections, the sinful condition and God's evaluation of them. So I want to come back to our original question. Why does God allow bad things to happen? If you are hoping for an answer that makes you feel warm and fuzzy, I don't have one. But I do have an answer that is true. My answer will be what God allowed to the only good person to ever walk the earth. God allowed every one of these things to happen to his son. And Satan is known for every one of them and used every one of them against Christ. Let's look back. The haughty eyes. This was the prideful glare of the Sanhedrin. This was the eyes of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the elders, who all wanted Jesus out of their way so that they could line their pockets even more. They were prideful. They thought they were better than him and they wanted him dead. Number two. The lying tongues, they continually lied to discredit him. They even distorted the word of God so that they could get their way. Number three, they shed innocent blood. They may have not driven the nails through his hands, but their hands shed his blood. His blood is on their head, and he was as innocent as they come, the spotless lamb. Next, their Hearts that devise wicked plans. They had this murderous plot in their heart for years. When you read the Gospels, they had been planning this all along. And it was devised in their wicked hearts. Next, they ran to do evil. They could not get there fast enough. 
Middle of the night, they get Jesus in the garden. They've already run and got all the soldiers together. As soon as the sun comes up, they're at Pilate's doorstep. First thing in the morning. They ran to do evil. They could not wait to put him to death. And in his mock trial, they sent many false witnesses, professional liars who couldn't even get their stories straight. And then worst of all, the, dis the discord among the brothers, they sent Judas, one of the 12, created division among Jesus' disciples. Satan entered into him so that he may betray Jesus and hand him over to the Sanhedrin. All of those things. Where do you think God was when these things happened? They all combined to send Jesus to the cross, and they all combine to form God's solution for sin. Think about that. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. God orchestrates all things, even the evil things, even all the things he hated, still hates. He orchestrated so that Christ would go to the cross. Think about that for a moment. We can't understand it right now. Or excuse me, if, if we were there at the time, we'd be like the disciples. We could not understand, no, Jesus, why do you have to go to the cross? But now, looking back, would we change it? When we say, no, Jesus, don't go to the cross, I would rather to have my own penalty still on my shoulders. Praise God for the cross. Praise God that our God takes evil things and he turns it into glorious things. Looking back, we wouldn't dare stop it. And if you were tempted to get self-righteous when you read this and point fingers and think the wicked people are out there, Jesus went willingly to the cross to take your pride. If you are in him, if your faith is in him, my lies, your murderous plots, our running to evil, our false witnesses, and all the discord we sow, we are guilty of every one of these things. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Don't you dare be arrogant. Praise God for the cross. And praise God we didn't get what we deserved. Amen? And if you are here this morning and you are holding on to your own hope of your own righteousness, if you think you can stand before an almighty God, you don't know how great he is and how wicked you are. Because if your mind has committed anything on the list we looked at today, you are the wicked, worthless person that will be broken beyond healing apart from Christ. Your monopoly money you think you can pay to him, it's Belial. It's worthless. And when he breaks you, there is no healing, no coming back. I want to spend our last moments in preparing for the table in Ephesians 2 where we began. I want to bring this full circle because this is exactly what we talked about this morning. Ephesians 2 begins with the depraved state of man in, in uh, verses 1 through 3. And then it transitions with God's solution after that. We should never get tired of reading Ephesians 2. When we face our sin, our, the ugliness of our nature, praise God that we have his mercy on full display. Look at Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Let's start here. You were dead. Not mostly dead, not kind of dead, dead. Dead men don't choose anything. Dead men don't do anything worth life. In which you once walked. Again, this is assuming you are in Christ. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. You work for Satan. You followed him. The course of this world, you were dead. You were the walking dead. You thought you're alive, but you're a zombie just wanting to munch on brains. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, the curse still stands. Depravity still has hold of the sons of disobedience in the same work that Satan was doing. From Genesis 3 on, he is still doing. And there are many 
carrying it out, the desires of their body and the mind, who were by nature, not just by choice, but by nature, children of wrath. Everyone born in Adam, all of mankind, children of wrath, the wicked. This is horrible news. Oh God, who could ever be saved if this is all of us? And then the great transition here. One of my pastors used to say this is the most beautiful but in the entire Bible. But God. Every good statement starts with but God. Every bad statement starts with but man. And every good statement starts with but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen? Amen. When we see the wickedness of our own depravity, we can say but God who is rich in mercy, abounding in steadfast love, has made us alive in Christ. By grace. Let's continue reading. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Think about that. God is showing us how powerful and how rich and how wonderful he is by saving us. Our own salvation shows how immeasurable the riches of God's mercy are. That is how powerful and good our God is. He saves dozens of people in this room, hundreds of people in this city, thousands of people in this country, millions of people throughout history. Only by Christ going to the cross, only by all of that evil working out for good could we have any hope of salvation. And only our God, that is how good our God is. Don't you dare put God on trial because he went through all, he put all that together to save sinners like us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. Do not rest on your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you hear all this, you know you have nothing to boast in in and of yourself. Don't try to rest in your own righteousness. And so as we prepare for the table, uh, deacons can grab the supplies. Um, communion is a reminder that we are the worthless person. We are the Belial. And Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities when we deserve to be broken. He stood in our place. Take a few moments, prepare your hearts to approach the table, and remember, if you are in Christ, you get out of your seat and you stand tall, not because of your own righteousness, because of, because of your confidence in him. Because this table reminds us that we are united to him and one another through him. And the great news that, and such were some of you, but God being rich in mercy made us alive together in Jesus Christ. Take a few moments and we'll approach the table together.